When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, and this is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. Well, as this airs, Christmas is right around the corner, and the day that we have been waiting for and preparing for every day for the past few weeks is about to come. But as long as that might seem to us, you know, God has been preparing with great eagerness for a very long time. And I've invited Gail Summers back to talk about some of the whispers of incarnation that we can find in the Old Testament and how knowing those has enriched her celebration of Christmas, and I know will enrich yours as well. Gail and I met quite a long time ago. We wrote a two-volume Bible study on Genesis together when we were both brand new Catholics, and we share a deep love of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament and the way that it helps us to come to know God and His Son. She is a wonderful teacher of Scripture and of the Catholic faith as well, and she has a blog on the Sunday readings that I highly recommend. You can find it at www.coreardens.com. I am always blessed by Gail's insights, and I know that you will be too. Gail, welcome back to the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you very much, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you for joining me again. I was thinking, getting ready for this episode, that um, in times when I have visited Israel, I've been particularly struck by signs at the churches of the Annunciation in Nazareth and the Nativity in Bethlehem, that here the Word became flesh, there in a real place on our earth, that the Word became flesh. And not just that He came to be with us, but that He took on flesh as an infant is just powerful to think about that. And I think it's something that you can relate to, you know, as a convert, as I am. As Protestants, I remember rejoicing that Jesus came to earth, but not really thinking much about my body. And you said something once that really stuck with me, that our bodies really matter in Catholic life. What did you mean by that? Well, Sarah, it really truly was my first, one of my very first and and somewhat inarticulate reactions to being Catholic, uh, because I I felt very deeply that the only way to express it was to say, bodies, my body, all bodies, bodies matter in Catholic life. And of course, I learned this by going to Mass, because there we sprinkle water on our bodies when we go into the church and when we come out. We kneel and we stand during the Mass, during our worship. We make the sign of the cross on our bodies. We speak aloud with our voices and the responses of the liturgy. We pass the peace in our bodies. And even when we get up and walk to the Eucharist, we don't sit. We get up and walk to the Eucharist, receive it in our tongue or in our hands, consume it in our bodies. So that it, it, it was full body. It was a full bodied <laughs> experience for me. And honestly, it delighted me. It was satisfying in every way. Yeah. So is this just because we have bodies, so we happen to use them? Or is there something particularly important about our bodies? Well, I can tell you that um, this, this awareness of bodies was very fresh and real to me. So when I started to study the scripture as a Catholic, I had 
lived as an evangelical for a long time. We loved the scripture. We knew the scripture. Uh, but when I began studying scripture and then teaching scripture as a Catholic, I found that I actually had new eyes to see what I, I probably saw before, but just didn't think about very much. And I, I have to tell you that um, I got some surprises when I did that. Yeah. It started really in Genesis. I started studying the scripture as a Catholic in Genesis. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad that I, I chose Genesis because everything in Catholic life starts in Genesis. But God, when God made us, he said, let us make man in our image and likeness. We're all very familiar you know, with that. God is spirit. So he doesn't have a body, but man, he created man from the dust of the earth that he had created. And he created woman from the flesh and blood of Adam, man. So it, it's clear from the get-go that our bodies are God's idea. Mm -hmm. And he also made us in his image and likeness, which I think is the key here. Remember that when Adam was alone in the garden, it wasn't good. And so um, God created the animals and brought the animals to Adam. And he named them. But no helper was found suitable. And why was that? They, they both had bodies. Adam had a body. The animals had bodies. But they weren't suitable because Adam could not share his body or his life, really, with animals. Hmm. And so it is clear that because God made us with bodies and he doesn't have a body, but he also made us in his image and likeness, our relationship to God is like Eve's relationship to Adam. Mm -hmm. We are to God because God doesn't have a body, but we do, but we're like him. And so our relationship to God is not like an animal to Adam, but like Eve to Adam. And we all remember Adam's just delight, his ecstasy, really, when God presented Eve to him. At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's a great delight in the human communion that they could have. And that's what God created us for, which is pretty spectacular. And then, you know, at the time of the fall, we have a, an opportunity to kind of get a glimpse of what the communion that God intended was supposed to be like. And it comes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, this particular verse, I think, can actually get lost in the drama of the fall and the consequences and what God had to do. But I think it's worth some careful thought. I really do. We've already said that God is not a body. God didn't have a body, wasn't walking around in the garden in a body. But he was certainly present in a very unique way, which the poetry of Genesis describes for us. He made a sound. He chose a lovely place. He was looking for man and woman. Why? Why was he looking for man and woman? That's the question we have to ask. Why was he looking for man and woman? Well, of course, we know that they were hiding. But he was looking for them because he wanted and he expected physical proximity with Adam mm -hmm. and Eve. He didn't want to communicate with them simply from heaven. Somehow, there in the garden, God called out with a voice that they could hear, where are you? Where are you? Hmm. And again, this is another one of those places in scripture where I, I hope we can pause 
and let the poignancy of this moment sink into us. It's a very important moment in human history. And why is that? Well, because this question, where are you? Ever since the fall, we are the ones tempted to ask that of God. Mm -hmm. How many times in times of suffering, tragedy, darkness, we want to say, where are you? Even on the cross, Jesus said to God, why have you abandoned me? So this, we know this kind of question as human beings, fallen human beings. But the first time in scripture that the question gets asked, God is asking the question. He's the one who's seeking us. He's the one who wants to be in close physical proximity with Adam and Eve. He wants to see their bodies. He wants to see them. It's so interesting because surely he knows where they are, but he wants them to come and be in his presence. Right, exactly. And they are, because of the fall, they're hiding their bodies from him. Wow. They're hiding their bodies from him. And so in the rest of Genesis, God, when God speaks to people, he's speaking from heaven or he's speaking through angelic messengers. The communication now has changed. It's different, but it doesn't stay different, really. Yeah, it's so interesting to think of him loving our bodies. I don't consider that very much. I mean, I, I think God loves me as a person, who we are, you know, inside. But our bodies, that's a new, th- a new thought. How does that change? Well, it changes in a big way in the book, very next book in the Old Testament, that the book of Exodus. Exodus, for me, I would have to say, was a blockbuster for me as far as understanding Catholic life with God, liturgical life. It was Mm -hmm. a turning point for me. And partly, you know, it's because of how much initiative God took to be close physically, physically to his people. Yeah. It starts with Moses at the burning bush. You know, Moses is not looking for God. He's just tending his sheep and he sees the bush that's burning up, but it's not being consumed. It's, it still looks like a bush, which sounds like a sacrament, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. being consumed. God's there, but it still looks exactly like a bush. Yep. And God speaks to Moses. He calls out to Moses. And he's, he's physically so close to Moses that he has to warn him to take his shoes off because he's standing on holy ground. And so this is one of the first places that we see that it makes a difference to Moses' body to be in close physical proximity to God, just as it happens in Mass. All those things that we do with our bodies in Mass, it's not just so that we won't fall asleep. <laughs> All those things that we do, it's that we recognize we are in close physical proximity to God, and it makes a difference. So it starts really with Moses at the burning bush. Yeah, so we don't take off our shoes, but we bow. We cross ourselves. We genuflect. Yeah. We do. And we sprinkle water on ourselves, which is you know a very significant act of cleansing and preparing ourselves to approach divinity, holiness. And from this point on, the rest of the book of Exodus is full of the expression of God's longing to be near us. For example, I'll give you a couple of examples here. In Exodus 19, verse 4, Exodus 19, verse 4, after God had delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he says this, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians 
and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I mean, if you don't start crying at this, you know, you don't have a heart. (laughs) Because this is the poetic language of lovers. This is Mm. deeply infused with the reality of God's personal love and his desire to be with his people. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He didn't have to say it that way, did he? No, he could have just said, I got you free. You're out. (laughs) So, I mean, that should get our attention. And not only did he say things like that, but he dramatically demonstrated the seriousness of what he meant when he came down on Mount Sinai to speak with the people himself and and make a covenant of love with them. Mm-hmm. Like a marriage almost. Exactly. To marry his people. And that was followed by a great liturgical ceremony to seal them into the covenant so that really they became almost like blood relatives. There was mm-hmm. the blood of the animal sacrifices that were sprinkled on the altar, and then it was sprinkled on the people's bodies. Mm-hmm. So the blood that's offered to God is also given to the people. And that, that is as potent a sign, as an expression, a demonstration of how close God wants to be, flesh and blood together. It's amazing. But... There's something even more wonderful than that, and that is what comes next. After the sealing of the covenant, God invited Moses and 70 of the elders to come up the mountain to meet with him. And I think, uh, probably from my own experience, I think these verses here in Exodus are so beautiful and they're so overlooked that they're worth reading because they tell us what happened when men went up to see God. Exodus 24, verses 10 and 11. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Wow. Most of the people are at the bottom of the hill, you know, with a barrier between them, because if they get too close, they'll die. And they're up there eating and drinking and not dying in the presence of God. And when I first read these verses, I was shocked that I really had no memory of reading them. Or if I did read them, I probably did because I studied the book of Exodus. I I just didn't think about it. I, I did not think about it. At the same time, when I first read these verses... So much about Catholic life and worship clicked for me. I mean, just clicked into place. And if I read these verses once, I read them 50 times. I kid you not. I could not read these verses enough. Because to me, this is another heart-piercingly beautiful picture of God longing to be close to flesh and blood bodies like ours. Mm -hmm. The men didn't ask to go up. They didn't ask him to go see God. He offered an invitation, and they accepted his invitation. And they weren't burnt up by the fire of God's perfect holiness. They didn't die. Instead, they ate and drank in God's presence. Wow. Just beautiful. You know, it's so profound, but it also is very like what we do on Sunday morning, is it not? Yeah, these verses make you think of Mass. If we ever ask ourselves... 
or if others ask us, why would Jesus become bread and wine? I mean, to some people, the whole concept is extraordinary. Why would Jesus, you know, the, the Lord of the universe, come to us in bread and wine? Why would he become a meal in the middle of our worship? Yeah. And I think the answer starts right here in Exodus a long time mm. ago. I do believe the answer starts here because God wanted to share a feast with his people. And he mm -hmm. made it possible for them to do that in their bodies. That's because he spared them from what human nature actually deserves because of the fall, death, so that they could be with him. And it's the same with Jesus. Jesus desires to share a meal with us. And because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we now can eat and drink in his presence and not die and really, you know, the, the heart of this, I think, is we can see at the Last Supper in Luke twenty two fourteen. These words, the more we know about the Old Testament background to these words, the more impact these words are going to have on us. Because in, in Luke twenty two fourteen, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The mass is the new Passover meal. Jesus earnestly desires us to share that with him in the kingdom of God on earth, which is the church, but also pointing forward to the, the wedding feast of heaven. It's definitely not something that Catholics can read without thinking about the mass, I would say. And, you know, one other thing, too, I, I want to say this, too. It's not just the meal, eating the meal in God's presence that um, goes back to the Old Testament, but the table of the Eucharist itself has a biblical context, starting in, of course, the book of Exodus. Because at Sinai, God gave Moses lots of directions about how to build the altar of sacrifice. It was going to go into the tabernacle first, and then later it would go into the temple in Jerusalem. So he's telling Moses exactly how to build it, what not to do and what to do. And then when it's complete, God makes a promise about that altar. And this is what he says in Exodus 20, 24b. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, in other words, at an altar of sacrifice, when I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. We'll flash mm. forward to the Last Supper. Mm. Jesus gave the bread and the wine to his apostles. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So here we have God in the flesh, Jesus, causing his name to be remembered in the context of the sacrifice of himself. And that promise from Exodus still holds because in the mass, he comes to us and blesses us. And the thing that's blowing my mind right now is I hear you talk is just the added thought that this meal that we're sharing is him. It is his body and blood. It is not that he makes some bread and wine appear and we share that. We actually share him. I mean, that replaces, you know, the sprinkling of the blood in Exodus on the altar and the sprinkling on their bodies, which is a foreshadowing of the kind of communion that God wants to have with us. In the Eucharist, it's made real. It's fulfilled.
his body, flesh and blood, in our bodies, flesh and blood, marriage. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, this was before I became Catholic, but I guess the first time I really studied the Old Testament as a whole, I was 20 or something, maybe a late teenager, and I wanted to find God, and sometimes was frustrated at not being able to find him. It was in an Old Testament theology class I took, discovering that God longed for me and watching the way he just kept after the people of Israel. But it never occurred to me that he would want my physical presence. So this is just beautiful, beautiful. That is exactly it, Sarah. We always thought about our relationship with God in terms of our hearts and our minds. Yes. Which is true. That's all good. Which is true, of course. But our hearts and our minds are enfleshed in a body. It's all one, body and soul. You know, it, it helps us avoid the Gnostic heresy of sort of forgetting about the body. We have spirits, we're spirits, we're souls. The bodies don't matter. Yeah. And today our bodies don't matter. You know, your body has no impact on who you are. Yeah, exactly. It's the new Gnosticism. I love all the things that you've drawn out of Genesis and Exodus. If this is true, one would expect it to be traced through the rest of the Old Testament. Do you do you continue to see these little whispers of the incarnation? You know, if you have eyes to see, you'll see it everywhere in salvation history. We know, of course, in the history of Israel that although God desired physical closeness with his people, their covenant infidelity often made it impossible. Yeah. However, in the prophets, especially in the prophets, there were, as you said, hints and whispers of this desire on God's part. And I'm just going to share a couple of them, really. One is uh, from the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah prophesied to Judah before, right before their exile. It was a chastisement. It was going to be serious, but he wanted to give the people hope of restoration. So there's this beautiful two verses in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion, the Lord your God is in our midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Mm. Can there be any human words that could better express God's joy to be living close to us? God's joy. You know what strikes me about that? You know, when they went into exile, they thought they were leaving the presence of God because they thought he just dwelt in Jerusalem in the temple. And so here he's saying, no, I am in your midst. He says it twice. Yes, yes, because that's where I want to be. That's where I wanted to be in the garden. There's another scripture from a, a prophet Isaiah this time, in Isaiah 49, 16. And Isaiah likewise had to preach chastisement uh, pretty seriously, but he also wanted to assure the people that God had not forgotten them and would not forget them, which is always the way it is with God's chastisements. Mm -hmm. It's never just uh, you've done wrong and you need to be punished, but there's hope. You know, then it's, it's always there's hope, there's hope. And that's this one. This is a brief verse, Isaiah 49, 16. Behold, I have graven you on the palms of my hands. Mm. So there, I, we do recognize this as being a, a deeply prophetic 
voice describing what God's love is willing to do to be with us and did do when those nails were driven into Jesus' hands to show Mm. us the power of that love. And we know from the New Testament now that Jesus' entire earthly life put him in close contact with human bodies. From the beginning, his conception and birth in Mary's body, first of all, and then in his public ministry, he touched diseased and broken bodies. He touched dead bodies and raised them. He washed dirty feet of the apostles. He embraced children. He let a sinful woman wash his feet and dry them with her hair. And then when he left us to top it all off, he gave us a gift. And that gift, not only would it enable us to be physically close to him, it would enable him to be physically close to us. That's the great gift of the Eucharist. And we understand that better now that because we've reviewed what the Old Testament was telling us all along. Wow. I'm speechless. <laughs> that is just incredible. And, uh, you know, thinking about that, we celebrate that every time we go to Mass. But in a few days, we're, when we go to Mass, we'll be celebrating the Nativity. You know, we'll be standing, looking down into the manger. As you think about that, you know, what will you be thinking? How does knowing all of this really enrich our experience there at the manger on Christmas? Well, you know, it's a good question, Sarah, because the incarnation is is huge. Because against all odds and against all expectation, human expectation, God is finally able to come very close to flesh and blood by becoming flesh and blood himself. And so how do you react to that? How could you react to that? I think we have, all of us, many different kinds of reactions. And I, I think... Uh, that they change over the years, depending on our circumstances, uh, depending on who we are, how, how we have changed. Just as a personal example, I, I can remember when our kids were young. We had three kids. Our kids were young. And for many, many years, when we got to the Christmas Eve mass and looked in the, the cradle, I personally was exhausted. I was overstimulated. <laughs> yes. I was distracted, and I could barely put two pious thoughts together. There were other times, you know, when the house quieted down, that I could have a a quieter, simpler advent that worked for me. So I think maybe because of what we've talked about today, you and I, in this Old Testament, beautiful Old Testament picture of what the incarnation meant for God, not just Mm -hmm. for us. I think that whether we're, we get to the Christmas Eve Mass and we're exhausted, we're on our last nerve, and we've had our bumpy patch with all the kids, <laughs> or we are people who enjoy and are, find a quiet, simple Advent deeply satisfying. Maybe when we can just be quiet and simple, and when we look into the cradle, we draw near the cradle at Christmas Eve, we look at the babe. Maybe what we would want to say to him is, I am so glad that you are here. That's a simple, and it says everything. I am so glad Mm -hmm. that you are here. And maybe we can imagine now 
that although he's a baby and he can't really talk, but if he could, the babe would say to us, and I'm so glad that you are here. Oh, my. Oh, that is just beautiful. Thank you. Gail, is there a particular scripture that captures this that we could close with in prayer? Sarah, I think so. You know, I've been thinking about that. You had asked me to kind of think that through, and I did think it through. And interestingly enough, you know, I came up, I thought I would come up with something from the Old Testament. But no, I found myself in the book of Revelation. Uh, Uh, And I'm going to read the verse and then tell you why I thought this was the best one. It's in Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Let's see, what can I possibly say about these verses? (laughs) Several things. First of all, um, this gives us the perfect circle from the garden to heaven, to the end of all things, when the former things have passed away. What has he always wanted to be in our midst? And even this gesture, God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. If we find ourselves crying in public, and that happens sometimes, if we find (laughs) ourselves crying in public, if we're talking to just strangers or maybe acquaintances, and somebody would reach forward to try to wipe away the tear, I'm thinking most of us would shrink back a little bit. Is That's just a little too intimate for strangers to do and even just acquaintances. However, if we're crying in front of someone who loves us, someone that we love very much, and that person reaches forward and wipes away the tear, mm-hmm. there cannot be a gentler, more intimate, loving gesture than that one, wiping away mm-hmm. the tears. Identification with us. Um, and that's what God is going to do. That's the promise. And we, we've seen now he keeps his promises. That's one thing we've seen. And so I guess the other reaction that I have here from this verse is that this whole idea of the incarnation as being a joy for us and a delight for him, that means that we have to remember that we love him. We love him, but not more than he loves us. And he has shown that to be true. That's not just a pious hope. We love God and he loves us more than we love him. It's not just a pious hope. It's in the scripture everywhere. And the experience of our lives. And I love that you closed with Revelation because Advent is, of course, it's about, you know, coming to the manger and remembering that Jesus did come to earth, but it's also all about waiting for when he comes again and we see fulfillment of that. And you have pointed out that that involves our bodies and intimate things like God wiping away tears from our eyes and so much to look forward to and anticipate. And I think that just injects so much joy into our celebration of Christmas. So I am going to um, pray with that scripture now as we close. So if you're listening, close your eyes. Allow the word to speak to your heart and God to just to reassure you and to give you that hope of what we have to look forward to here in his coming again. 
Come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word to us. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Heavenly Father, I can't get Gail's words out of my mind that you are so glad when we are there with you physically in our bodies. Thank you for loving us, body and soul, for being with us truly, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, for not giving up on being with us. Thank you for your word and for the life and the strength that it brings. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us in Scripture. And give us the grace that we need to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. And Mary, Mother of the Word, pray for us. Oh, Gail, thank you. What a blessing this has been. My whole Christmas will be different because of this. <laughs> when I got your text or your email saying you wanted me to do the podcast, you know, I, my heart sank. I thought, oh, no, no. I thought it was over with that. Uh, and you said I was going to be on the incarnation. And I thought, I'm going to do it because it's Sarah. So then when I started working on it, I thought, wow, I'm so glad Sarah asked me to do this because why would I have put together these thoughts this way if you hadn't asked me to do the podcast. I find it very thrilling. I mean, it's given me a whole new perspective on the incarnation. Well, your excitement is contagious. And thank you for your sacrifice in sharing that with everybody who will be listening to this. This is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I wish you a most blessed Christmas and pray that God will richly bless you as you read His Word and draw closer to Him.